You're listening to the Gateway Christian Church Beckley Campus Podcast. To find out more about the church, visit our website at gatewaychurch.net. Let's get into this week's message. I, I want to start off this message kind of with just a personal uh, story, if I may, this morning. Uh, for those who are at home, I, I believe we're all not guilty of this, but we all do this. Maybe that's the best way to explain it. We all see God how we want to see God. Can I say that again? We all see God how we want to see God, especially how he fits into our lives. We're not, this is something that we all cover on the blank blanket. We want God to work for us. <laughs> I know that sounds pretty bold as a minister saying that, but let's just get real. That's exactly how we see God. That he's good and worthy of praise if everything goes what? Good. And that if things are going bad in our life, and then we go do this. Well, why, God? Why me? Where are you? Anyone else do this? No, everyone does this. And so what happens is when those questions aren't being answered properly and found in Scripture and prayer, we go upon our own way, and we try to formulate and try to come up with reasons why God's doing what he's doing. Have you ever had somebody doing this to you? Everybody say, well, God has his reasons, honey. Well, thanks. That's great wisdom, but what are the reasons? <laughs> you know, I mean, they mean well, but they're not really helping you. And so we get a partial picture of who God is because we're only seeing him through our eyes and through our experiences and through our worldview. But have you ever thought about looking at God the way he truly is? And so this morning, my prayer is that as we go through this message, that that you will no longer be satisfied with the partial view of who God is based on our experiences and what we think he's about and actually look and see what the scriptures tell and describe how vast and how great and how mighty and how awesome our God is. Because if you're only seeing him the way you want to see him, then you are really not really worshiping God. You're worshiping yourself. And I believe that's an important thing for us to consider this morning. You know, we started the sermon series, Faith with Doubt, and we made some introductory statements last week. Like, number one, it's normal to have questions in your faith. We all agree with that, right? It's normal for us to have questions in our faith. Uh, we just don't and won't know everything for all you know-it-alls out there, <laughs> all right? You just won't and you just are not going to know everything. We live with the mystery of evil. We live with pain and suffering. Even the love of God that would send his own son to the cross that we celebrate each Sunday morning in communion, it's still hard to wrap our brains around that. That's why the apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith and not by sight. The Bible says that some things are revealed to us, but God has kept secret things to himself. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The Apostle Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we only see a reflection as in a mirror, then we'll see face to face. Now we know in part, then I shall fully know even as I'm fully known. As hard as we search the scriptures, there's still going to be some things that are going to be hard for us. If I may, I think we're all going to walk around with a mark on our forehead. Not the mark of the beast, but a red mark like that. We're going to be doing that a lot in heaven. That's what you meant by that. <laughs> you don't understand what I'm saying? That hurt. You shouldn't hit yourself that hard while you're trying to preach. All right, whoo, down goes Russ. 
That's bad when you're getting to the point that that right there is about ready to take you out. But I do believe we're going to walk around with a red mark on our forehead. Like, I'm, is one developing? It feels, oh, it feels like it's coming. Last week, we said it is the confidence of our faith to explain what we know. We have confidence and say, hey, I know this about God. And it's the humility of our faith to say that there are things that we just don't know. And so it's normal to have questions about our faith. Also, last week, we made this statement. You can, you can only doubt what you believe. I hope that was an important statement for you all. Because doubt only exists if there's already the presence of belief. Right? So when an atheist says they don't believe in anything, guess what they believe in? That statement. <laughs> That they are, they truly are saying, I don't believe in any God. I don't believe in anything. Well, you're believing in that statement. So you can only have doubt if there's some system of belief already. You know, that we should be encouraged when we have doubt because we know that God is still working on us. But we need to search out and try to find the answers. You know, that's the incredible time that people are called apologists in our world today. Not to say that we're sorry for everything, but we are making it a defense for why we believe what we believe. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 says this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone to ask you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That's a powerful passage of scripture. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for the reason for the hope that you have. And, you know, in this field of Christian apologetics, it's not us going around and saying, oh, we're sorry for everything that has ever went wrong with Christianity. That's not what apologetics is. Apologetics is the study of giving a defense for why we believe what we believe. Come on in, Marty. We're just glad to see you today, buddy. Marty's here, everybody. Your family's sitting right there, so go on up there. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's, oh, he chose the Pac-Man. He chose the Pac-Man. Wow. All right. All right. Have fun tonight. <laughs> so, but anyways, we're to, uh, what I'm trying to say is apologetics is not for us to apologize for everything that's ever happened wrong in Christianity. It's for us to give the reason why we believe what we believe. You know, it's studying in the areas of philosophy and history, and it's studying in the way of science of how we can explain God through all these things. I think a lot of times when it comes to the idea of science that we think we need to separate our scientific views from the biblical views. That's not true at all. Where do you think we got the knowledge to understand scientific things? <laughs> it all comes from one source. Where do you think we got the knowledge to be able to understand psychology? It all comes from one source. And that's what we're trying to say is that you can study both and still be a Christ follower and actually have answers to the most important questions that people are asking. And thirdly, we made this statement that doubt is not the same as unbelief. Remember, we explained the difference. Doubt is having questions about what you believe is true. Unbelief is the refusal to believe what you know is true, right? So if we all lick our fingers and go stick them in that light socket, that would be the most exciting day at church ever, right? But we know that there's something that should happen to us if we did that, right? There's a reason we don't do that. There's a reason you don't let your children take their little hands and turn the stove all the way up and leave the burner on. Because you know certain things to be true, right? That that's going to harm them. <laughs> Doubt is a struggle that we have with, as believers. It's going to be a struggle. 
the cure for this and the root causes, but unbelief is a condition that is in the heart of unbelievers. You can choose not to believe in God. Do you realize that? People can do that. And you know, and the only change of that condition is a heart change. And that comes through, as the Bible says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Not only through the power and the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit working in conjunction with the word of God is going to change the unbelief that people will have. Do you believe that? So that's God's part. But if we have doubt and have questions, we should understand that that is normal. Now, we need to understand which condition we're in. Don't expect to make a lot of spiritual ground with an unbeliever until he or she is converted to Christ. I mean, that's just something you have to understand. Now, I got friends who believe differently than I believe. And I think it's important for Christians to have those. I really do. If you're just hanging out with people who are just like you, then we're not fulfilling the mission that Jesus Christ gave us. Because we are to go into all the world and to preach the gospel at all, at all times and to help people come to know Jesus. It, it is almost, I, I, you remember that Penn and Teller video that we showed several months ago? Do you remember, was it Penn or Teller? Which one was the glasses? I don't know. Anyways, do you remember what he said? If Christians really believe what they, the Bible says is going to happen, then the Christians must really hate me as an unbeliever by not sharing their faith with me. I believe that, friends. If we're not sharing what we think is the most important thing, that we have forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ, and we're not sharing that with people who don't believe that, then we don't love those people who don't believe that. We, in turn, really truly hate them. Because how could you say you love someone and knowing that if they don't accept Jesus Christ, they're going to spend eternity in hell? So think about that. So in this series, Faith with Doubt, it's getting behind the doubt and helping them come through with the questions. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we talked about last week, we saw that affluence can cause us to forget God. Success, easy living, whatever else you want to call it, can give us a muddled memory that we fail to forget who God is. Moses warns his people of this in Deuteronomy chapter 8 before they go into the promised land. Don't forget what the Lord did for you while you were walking in the land of the desert. And so that we were to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. How many of you all hopefully went out this week and truly thanked someone and gave them praise or thank God for some situation in your life, whether it's your job or your career, your family. We need to create an attitude of gratitude, and then that way we don't forget what God has done for us. And this morning, we're transitioning over to another important term, and I kind of gave it early away, but it's a partial picture of God. And you can just go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 40. We'll get there in a few minutes. But what do we mean by a partial picture of God? I don't know. Did those pictures come through? Are they on the sermon? All right, let's show some of those pictures. Anybody know what that is? Anybody afraid to guess? Someone said mushrooms. We'll see. Show the next one. Anybody know what this one is? Ah, so you saw mushrooms. You see? Anybody see that? You didn't know what that was, did you? Inside of a... Man, those are the good ones, too. Anybody else agree that the orange ones are the best? 
Uh, the green ones are a little bitter, but when you get in those orange and yellow and red ones, those orange ones are the best. All right, next picture. We'll take some guesses. Anybody know what that is? I miss it. I'm pretty sure I know what that one is. I miss it. I think it's hair. Anybody else think it's hair? I don't know. That's my guess. All right, let's see what it is. Oh, it's pages of a Bible. Okay. Next. Or is that it? Oh, one more? Oh, three more. Anybody want to guess what that is? I think that's an ostrich. Anybody else think ostrich? All right, all right. Let's see what that is. Yeah. All right, we got one. One for three ain't bad. I'm getting ready to go back to school. <laughs> We're getting the curve. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's trying to sell us insurance. That's, a, that's the emu. That's not even an ostrich, isn't it? That's an emu, right? Who knows if that's an emu or an ostrich? All right, anyways, go ahead. Oh, my. I'm not going to get that one. Let's just see that one. That's a bug. Oh, yep, I'm over here. <laughs> yeah, okay, next. Oh, is that it? Is that all of them? But see, when you only see part, you know, there's a poem by John Godfrey Sachs. He put it back into a rhyme in the mid-1800s. I'm going to read it to us quickly. Just listen along. It was six men of Indostan, learning much inclined, who went to see an elephant, though all of them were blind, that each observation might satisfy his mind. First, the first approached the elephant and happened to fall against the broad, sturdy side. And once he began to, to bawl, he said, God, bless me. But the elephant is very much like a wall. The second, feeling out the tusk, cried, whoa, what do we have here? So very round and smooth and sharp, to me, it must be clear. This wonder, an elephant, is very much like a spear. The third approached the animal and happened to, t and happened to take a take, the squirting trunk with his hands. Then he boldly began and spake. I see, quoth the elephant, is very much like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand, and he fell about his knee. What most is wonder's beast like this? Is, my, is a mighty plane, quoth he. T is clearly the elephant and he is very much like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, E, the blind man said, can you tell what it resembles the most? Deny the fact who can, the marvel of the elephant is very much like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing and swinging the tail and felt with his scope. I see, quoth the elephant, is very much like a rope. And so these men of Indostan Disputed loud and long, each for his own opinion exceeded it stiff and strong. Though each was partially right, they were all so very wrong. So often theological wars, the disputants I mean, rail in utter ignorance on what each other mean. And pray about the elephant, not one of them has ever seen. It's a popular poem from the 1800s talking about six guys who grabbed that were blind to grab different parts of the elephant and were convinced that this is what the elephant looked like, that they were 100% right. And this happens a lot in the realm of Christianity. I, I, I think Christians get so caught up in arguing with other Christians about stuff that has nothing to do with salvation, has nothing to do with their relationship with Jesus, has nothing to do with eternity, but they are so... 
driven by this need to be right that we can be so wrong. And I think it not only happens inside of Christianity, it also happens inside of relationships. If your necessity is always to be right about every situation, then you're going to have very few people who are close to you in life. Because you can be right and yet be so very wrong. Hopefully, we can all see that we can be right and still be wrong. Later in life, we create a fertile ground for doubt, driving many Christians to discouragement. And let me show you what some of these symptoms are of discouragement. I see this a lot in, other, in, in Christians that I talk to a lot. What are the symptoms or the partial picture of Christian faith, if you may be? Number one's boredom. You ever noticed this? And one for many has painted that is Christianity is boring, it's legalistic, it's overbearing, and we have an angry picture of God. If you think as God is dull or boring, then you definitely have an incomplete picture of who God is. Because the Almighty God that we serve has nothing close, He is nothing close to dull or boring. With Jesus, there is new adventure waiting for you every single day. You have only eyes to see what your problem is, and you're not seeing the entire picture of God. I don't know if you've ever been watching the new video series that's out uh, called The Chosen. Anybody seen The Chosen? Anybody? It's a video series. I don't know how you do it. You know, Taylor can tell you how to get on that stuff. He, he had to teach me. But it's free, isn't it, Taylor? And it's about the life of Jesus, right? And it's about what his life looked like through basically the eyes of the disciples. And, and it allows you to really think, wow, I didn't think of Jesus like this. But anyways, his persona was so compelling, it was confident and magnetic when they were around Jesus. If you think God is boring, you don't know the God of the Bible. You haven't grasped the depth of the Gospels, of who the reality and the story of Jesus. Not only do people get bored, but I also think they get pessimistic. <laughs> Are you one of those people? If you are, you and I are going to have a hard time being around each other. Because I always see the best in every situation. I think of the best of every person. But if you're an Eeyore, an Eeyore and I are having a hard time having a conversation. Because I think about the limitless power of God. But if you're a pessimistic person, one of the natural reaction is to be distorted or their partial picture of God is like, yeah, right. You know, and the one of the greatest stories in the Bible that someone said, yeah, right, was the story of Sarah. Do you remember Sarah was 90 years old? And what did she find out? She was going to have a baby. <laughs> Why you laugh so hard, Pat? You shouldn't laugh that hard. <laughs> I'm not 90 yet. Hang in there, Pat. <laughs> so, so, but do you remember the story of Sarah when she found out she was going to have a baby? What did she do? She laughed. Like, are you kidding me? We sometimes do this when we don't want to hear the truth of God. Can I say that again? We kind of get pessimistic. If you hear that God loves you or that the Holy Spirit will help you in your battle, you may have some pessimism about that. You might say, yeah, right. I've been in this battle for years with no relief. God can't help me out of my addiction or my fear or my trouble, etc." Listen, if you're pessimistic about who God is and what he can't do, you definitely don't have the complete picture of God because nothing is impossible for our God. Thirdly, it's not only boredom or pessimism, antagonism. 
These are the people who once were active believers, who have gone through a certain tragedy or adversity in their lives and have become hostile towards God. They have grown bitter, not better, about their problems. It's not that they have stopped believing in God. They just don't, they just hate the God they used to believe in. That's true. I've seen people just like this. They're antagonistic towards him because he allowed them to go through such pain and adversity. You may find so-called atheists are really just angry believers. That's true. Who need an understanding and healing in their life. If you've met someone in this condition about God, they will describe the God they hate. And they will show them, you, you must show them the God that loves them. So understand these symptoms are not a problem with God for who he truly is, but they are a partial picture of who God that we create him to be. It's our problem with our perception of God. Does that make sense? It's how we're seeing God. So let me ask, how do these symptoms develop in us? And we're going to look through the Bible this morning, and you're going to see how they come about. Number one, we only see God from our own experience. You know, have you heard the phrase, well, you walk in my shoes and then tell me what you would do? You ever had somebody have that conversation with you? You go ahead and just walk in my shoes, and then you tell me what, how you would do it. But we are truly only limited to be able to walk through our life in our own shoes. And for me, that's got problems with people's feet. I'm kind of okay with that. <laughs> you know, I don't want to borrow your shoes. I don't want to borrow your sandals. I don't want to see your feet. Does that make sense? So, but I, I really believe that this is what we kind of see is people will say, well, you don't know what anything until you walk into what I've walked through. If we allow our own experience to be the only view that we have of God, we are just like the blind men with the elephant because we're only seeing God through what we experience. Why is this? Because our experience of life is an experience of life in a fallen world. Let me say that again. If you're only seeing God through what you experience, then you're only seeing God through the fallenness of this world because this world is not how God designed it. This world is messed up. And, and if we live in this sinful, fallen, sinful world, then we're at war with the God that we have made. This world has been ravaged by sin and the evil powers, and you and I are living right in the smack dab middle of it. We're as in the muck <laughs> as much as you can be in the muck. This is not how God designed things. We bear scars of betrayal, abuse, addictions, and even our own failures. We all have scars right here. Here's one right here. You know what that scar is from on my life? That scar is when I took the kids go-kart racing to French Lick, Indiana. And they were the fast go-karts that you had to wear a helmet and a neck brace. Now, remember, these were when they were little. And, and, and we may have fudged their age by about six years. <laughs> so we get out there by about six, just six. It's not a biblical number, so I think God was all right with it. It's not like it was seven or three. But anyways, uh, so we're out there driving, and we come into the pits, and Eli doesn't really apply the brake pressure as much as he should and just jacks everybody up, all right, including dad. And I'm like kind of dazed and confused like I hit my head. Is it still red up here like I did in the first? So I'm a little bit like that. And so I get up to get my big body 
you know, out of the go-kart. And when I do, I slice my wrist right there. And, it, and, you know, it looks like I've tried to take my own life. I mean, seriously, I mean, it's squirting. I mean, people are going nuts. They're like, get him down. Go to the hospital. You're going to die. All right? But we all bear scars. They're right here on me. And these scars have affected the way that we see God. You know, Fred, let me borrow your glasses for a second. I'll give them right back. Thank you. I won't break them. I think your head's about the size of mine. How many of you all have to wear these? All right. When you put these on, whoa, Fred, you've got issues. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Hang on a second. I got to hold on. <laughs> when you put these on, you're seeing the world, world differently, aren't you? And I think a lot of us do that with our problems, our scars our issues. Wow, Fred. Um, and, and we do. And, and guess what? When we see the world that way, guess how we also see God? Can I be honest with you? One of the hardest concepts for me to understand about God when I was first thinking about and contemplating having a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, can, I, can we be real? <laughs> was the idea of a loving father. Because you know what my worldview was like from the time I was six years old? When dad took off? Do you think I truly understood the, what it meant to have a loving father? No. And so when I was 12, 13, 14 years old trying to go to church camp and youth group and everybody said, oh, God loves you, the father loves you, all this stuff, you know where I was at? I was in pessimism. Yeah, right. Now, I don't want to, don't tell me about how much God loves me because <laughs> mine took off when I was six. I was seeing God through a filter. And I was only seeing the partial view of who he was and who he is. We do this. We still struggle with this. Do you remember the story of Ruth? Her mother-in-law's name was Naomi. And Naomi's story is probably one of the saddest in the entire Bible. Would you agree? Her family had a husband and two sons, had experienced severe famine that caused them to uproot and move from Bethlehem to Moab. Naomi lost her husband to death in that foreign land. She did her best to raise her two sons there, but these Jewish boys ended up marrying Moabite women, and one of them... Her name was Ruth. And then both of her sons died. This is a terrible fate for this woman. So here she is with her two daughter-in-laws uprooted again, but this time she goes back to Bethlehem. Imagine how devastated and how broken she was living in this foreign country, experienced the losses of her life. She told her two sons' wives this, don't come with me. You go back to your people and marry again. But Orpah, you remember, the one daughter-in-law, stayed behind. And you remember what Ruth said when it was time for her to probably to, to leave and to go back? Do you remember what Ruth said? She goes, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. But listen to what Naomi said to Ruth. It is more bitter 
for me than it is for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Ruth 1.13. And when they got to Bethlehem, the people said, can this be Naomi? She was older. Life had taken its toll. She was weathered. She was worn. She was looking pretty rough, probably. And she answered the people. She said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which is the Hebrew word for what? Bitter. This woman was bitter because the almighty God has made my life very bitter. How was she seeing God? She was very bitter. She wasn't in the right view of who God is. Could you really blame her? You lose your husband, you bury both your sons. That's going to affect you. Notice what she says. I went away full. I went away full. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi anymore? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. This is in Ruth 1, verse, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Naomi only had a partial picture of what God was going to do. Look at this tragedy in my life. God must hate me. She was drawing her own images of God from her own experience. And from her own experience, God was not a very good God. In fact, he seemed like he was almost unloving to her. And I'm afraid there's a lot of people in the very same partial picture of God. And you might be sitting in that seat today. So not only do we see the partial picture from our own experience that we see in Scripture, but we also see through God, through the only lens that we can think of, and that's religion. Remember why I told you to turn to Isaiah 40? Listen to what Isaiah 40, verses 18 and 19 say this morning. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? For an idol, a metalwork, cast it, and a goldsmith overlays the gold and fashions silver chains for it. Isaiah is talking about here the idea of idolatry and religious worship. An idol was something tangible, something that you could grasp hold of that represented God. Many of them throughout history have been made with gold and silver. In verse 20, he says, a person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not be toppled. So if you can't afford gold or silver, you should at least make your image of God out of some wood. What Isaiah is saying here is that people make an image that represents God to them. And over time, that image doesn't only represent God, it becomes God. That's what religion does. It replaces God and what he desires in a relationship and it allows us to put something in his place that becomes God for us. Exodus 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an image or a form of anything in the heaven above the earth, beneath the waters below. It's the second commandment in the Big Ten. Isaiah lived in a culture with many gods and goddesses. There was, there was fertility cults. There was a god named Moloch. There was worship of a god called Baal, the worship of a female deity called Asherah. We live in a culture today, you may not say, well, we don't see all these uh, idols in our culture. Are you kidding me? <laughs> we live 
may not be graven imagery, but we believe in these things called postmodernism. You know what postmodernism says? It rejects the idea of absolute truths. It rejects all idea that there can be an absolute truth for every situation. And you know why that's a problem for Christianity and why it should be concerning to you? Because we believe in the God who is the absolute source of what? All truth. So when God says something in his word, he means it not only for me and my experiences, he means it for everyone and their experiences. You know, it's like this, you know, somebody going through something and, and they put it on Facebook and they write this scripture and say, oh, that scripture was just for me. I, I, <laughs> I'm glad it helped them, but I'd like to be able to tell them, guess what? It was meant for all of us. <laughs> It's not just for what you're going through and what you're dealing with. That scripture is the same for all people, all times, all circumstances, all experiences. It's meant for all things and all situations for all times. And whether you believe it and whether you got a blessing from it or not, it's still the word of God. And that's what is so scary in our society today because we don't believe in absolutes anymore. We're even afraid as Christians to point out absolute things that are pointed in the scripture because we're called what? Racist. We're called, um, you know, bigots. We're called people who are just all into everybody else and that we are not inclusive enough. Friends, let me tell you something. God means what he says. He means exactly for you what he means for your neighbor. And if God calls something right, it's right. If God's called something wrong, it's wrong. And your experience really means about this much if it's right or wrong. But we can't do that because now we're not being loving. In the Garden of Eden, Satan tried to paint God to Eve as a God that was mean. He tried to say that he was vindictive. God tried to paint a picture to Eve that he wanted to hold her back. He wasn't a provider, but a prohibitor. That's where a lot of people think God is. And he knew he couldn't paint that partial picture of God. That would be easier for her to walk away from that partial picture of God than if she truly understood how big and how loving, how great God is. That's what the devil does. He takes your experiences, my experiences, and he tries to fit God in this box. And we all have our God box. You have it sitting at your house. You've got God in a box at your house. And when you need him, you open up the box. You say your little prayer. You read your scripture. And then you put God back in that box and you go about your daily life. Friends, this is nothing new. We have to fight the fallenness of our creation, the fallenness of ourselves to say that we just can't only see a partial picture of the God. When you've come here to worship God today, you've come to worship God's forgiveness, his holiness. You've also come to worship God's mercy, his justice, and his judgment. That's all of God. We can't just pull out the parts that seem that we like it. And here's where I think that we're at in America with most Christians. We are all spiritual diabetics. <laughs> we want sweet Jesus. Oh, give me the sweet stuff about Jesus. Give me the stuff that's easy. 
I don't want to hear about the words adultery, fornication, homosexuality, murder. I don't want to hear about what God has to say about that. I just want the stuff where he just forgives me. We've turned God into the grandfather in the sky that all he hands out is like, here, sweet children, come and get some candy from Papa. That's not the full picture of who God is. Because when Jesus Christ comes back again, he came the first time as a suffering servant. He's coming back as a roaring lion and a judge to judge the entire world. That's the truth. That's the full picture of who God is. And back in the day, the preachers used to preach on heaven and hell. They used to pound it from the pulpit. And many people came to know God because they were scared to death to go to hell. But now today, if we even mention the word hell, well, we're being judgy. How are we being Christians? Friends, <laughs> we are no different than the blind man touching the elephant. So what is the correction, what is the correction for the partial picture of God? Give me two minutes. It's very simple. It's Bible study and prayer. If you are limited in your view of who God is, then no preacher is going to be able to convince you the other side. You have to pick up the Bible. You have to read it. And when God says things that you don't like, <laughs> you have to bend your will to his because he ain't moving. All right? <laughs> you got you to submit to him because God's not going to make, you're not the exception. <laughs> you're not the exception. But boy, we want to live in that area. We want judgment on everyone else, but when it comes to us, we want mercy. <laughs> you will drive. You probably, anybody speed on their vacations this summer? Anybody? All right. Anybody justify it as that you let the other guy go that's five miles faster and you get enough space between you and then you can do the same speed. And then if the cop sees him first, you're praying that he gets him first. Anybody else do that? You sinners. <laughs> we all do that. We all do that. And then if the cop came and got you, you're like, oh, well, didn't you see him? And then you get mad at your kids when they do the same thing <laughs> to you. <laughs> well, well, yeah, but, but, but did you see Phoebe's room? <laughs> you see it? It happens all the time. So if you want to cure your partial picture of God, you've got to study the Bible. Isaiah says in verse 18, there is nothing on earth that you can compare with God. He created all of it. He is above it. He is greater than anything or anyone can imagine. The theological word here for God is he's transcendent. He is otherworldly. Listen to verse 25 and 26 in Isaiah 4. It says this, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to heaven. Who created all of this? Who, he who brings out the starry host, one by one, will call forth everyone by name because his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. So where do we turn when we don't get a complete picture of God? We not turn to ourselves or something man-made, but we turn to God himself. And we start trying to see things the way God sees things. You know, I'm going to get on my soapbox as I kind of wrap this up. But here's my pet peeve, one of them. 
is when Christians start looking at people who are stuck in sin and say, how can they be like that? Who are you to judge them? Because my question is to you is how can you be like you are? The same God that saved you is the same God that has the power to save whatever someone's dealing with, right? Amen? You are no better. Your sin is no different. It may not be as public. It may not be as destructive. But your little white lie, your little, well, I'm not, go- I'm not one to gossip, but. Everything you're going to say after that but is what? <laughs> so you remember my favorite sermon title? How big is your butt, right? That's the best sermon title that God's ever given any person. That's my favorite sermon to preach. But I'm serious. We, we, we just kind of look right past those things. Surely that's not as bad as the addiction, the adultery the drug use, we have a partial picture of God. You want to know how much he loves you? He was willing to go to the cross and die for you. Can, can this morning, can I as I wrap this up, Taylor and Karen can come on up. Um, I'm, usually I have you sit down before I pray, but today I want you to stand up. I want you to stand up with me and pray. Taylor, you can flip that light there. Thank you. If you're stuck only seeing God through your own experiences today, I'm going to pray specifically for you. I don't want you to be nearsighted anymore. I don't want you to limit. You know, when you, when you only see a partial picture of God, you realize this? You're limiting God. You realize that? When, when you're only viewing God through your own personal experience, your God's not very big. So I want you to pray with me this morning. And I want, the reason I got this sheet is because I want to make sure I pray this exactly the way it's written. Dear God, today I want to see you more clearly so that I can love you more dearly and follow you more nearly. Dear God, I want to see you more clearly so that I have the ability to love you more dearly that I can follow you more nearly. When we doubt, we have to fight boredom and pessimism and antagonism. But the goal is to see God for who he really is, to see the entirety of him. And it amazes me when you look at people in scripture that we read about, that when they come face to face with your holy presence like Isaiah, and he cries out, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Or when the shepherds saw the angelic beings pronouncing Jesus the righteous was born in Bethlehem, they fell down prostrate before Because I think once we get the full picture that that is the only natural response. When we don't just limit you to your box, I think we all fall down and say, 
Oh, Lord, my God. And I believe until we see that, we don't have the full picture of what it means to be forgiven and to be died for on the cross of Calvary. Because once we see that, it changes us. So maybe this morning we all need to be changed a little bit. Start with me, Father, I pray in Jesus' holy name and all God's people said. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To find out more, visit us online at gatewaychurch.net. See you next week.